Welcome back to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. As we continue our discussion with Dr. Awari Hayanga, Dr. Kendra Group, and Dr. Viv Rao on diversity in healthcare. It's obvious that we need more diversity in healthcare. And so therefore recruitment is crucial. I mean, the more people, the better representation of the population in, in healthcare, the better it is for everybody. And, and so with recruiting young doctors, I, are you taking into account diversity in your staff? Yes, I mean, we don't particularly look out for you know, a specific minority group when recruiting, but I think all institutions now have a disclaimer at the bottom of their recruitment ad saying that applicants from visible minorities or expressing different opinions are welcome to apply and are encouraged to apply. So I think we are trying to be inclusive in the recruitment process. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think all of us want the best candidate. And we don't ever want to say that Dr. Smith was added to the faculty because they represented this minority, but they otherwise wouldn't have been recruited. So I think I'm very confident in my entire faculty has been recruited here, were recruited on their merits. And it just so happened that we represent a, a very diversified faculty. So looking at our nine surgeons, and, and I challenge anybody in North America to have as diverse a faculty as we do. We have three female cardiac surgeons. We have three brown surgeons. We have two Asian surgeons. And in fact, the uh, three white males are the minority in our group. So I think, you know, by natural attrition, and as we said, I think times are changing. And I think the applicants that are coming through medical school, courtesy of people like uh, Aori and, and Kendra, they've seen role models, they've seen mentors who've done well and succeeded in this field. And so they're no longer inhibited from applying to more challenging specialties like cardiac surgery. So we're seeing this group of trainees uh, emerge. And for the large part, they're very well-trained and they're very marketable. So we're fortunate to have recruited them. So what did what has changed now when you have now a more diverse staff compared to the previous, maybe? Well, you know, I'll, I'll go back a step and say, what has changed in terms of the culture? I think there's been some very concrete organizational things that have helped. And one of the biggest things was the whole maternity, paternity policy. And one of the things that I think you know, probably consciously biased females from entering careers in surgery is if they chose to combine that with having families, there was just no accommodation for that at the university level. No one gave you the time off. No one gave you the academic credit to say, well, she took a mat leave for three months or six months. So, you know, her academic progress was understandably halted. That's all changed now. Now there is in concrete written policies saying that Faculties, whether you're male or female, have certain rights with respect to paternity leave or maternity leave, and that the time that you take off is then added on to your normal uh, academic progression. So I think there's some cultural things that, that have been codified, shall we say, in the institutions that have helped to encourage this. In terms of how having a diverse faculty impacts us, I think, you know, a lot of patient groups seek out physicians that share their cultural backgrounds and, quite frankly, for lack of a better word, look like them. So we really do get patients who say, I'd like a Hindi-speaking surgeon or I'd like a Chinese-speaking surgeon and I prefer Mandarin because I'm more you know, fluent in Mandarin. And so these requests come out and, and it's surprising. And we discuss this quite often on our faculty rounds. No one actually cares about, I want the surgeon with the lowest cabbage mortality. They want the surgeon who has the shortest waiting list and who speaks their language and can get them and, and is pleasant on the phone. That's what matters to patients right now. And yeah. they just assume that if you're on a faculty of a, of a major institution, that you are a competent surgeon, that someone else is accountable for making sure that you're a competent surgeon. So that doesn't enter into their mind frame. If these other subtle facts that come into play that I don't 
know if that existed 20 years ago. I think at the time, patients paid money to go to the best surgeon that they thought could get the job done. And uh, when there would be a majority women in, in the faculty, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, I discussed it with a colleague who was looking for a new surgeon and said, well, you know, we have a great resident, she's female. And, and then he said, no, I don't want more women in my staff. You know, I already have enough. And they all go for maternity leave, et cetera. And I have to run my department. What would your reaction be? Well, I'd say that's unfortunate because if that is the best candidate out there, then you're depriving your faculty of a star candidate. I don't know what the experience is on my fellow panelists, but I can tell you that of the two surgeons on my faculty that have had children and have taken maternity leaves, I had to force them to stay home. In fact, I said, why are you coming back so soon? You know, it's only been eight weeks or six weeks. And I said, you know, we can we can manage without you. I think this is an important time for you to be with your children and with your baby, and you'll never get this time back. And I had to literally argue with them to take more time off. So it was never an issue of, oh, my God, they're gone for a year and, you know, we're carrying their load. It was always the opposite. So for those people who think that hiring a female surgeon is going to cause all sorts of administrative headaches, I, I'm going to tell you that the opposite is true in my experience. Right. Kendra, the women fear that when they take a break, you know, when they get a baby and that it will impact their career. Well, I think that that is a reality. I hope that people are no longer asking um, female applicants about their plans for having children. I know that when I was applying to cardiothoracic surgery fellowship, you know, there was always the disclaimer, oh, I'm not supposed to ask you this. But it was very clear that they were asking this. You know, I remember um, being asked multiple times, you know, why aren't you married? When are you planning on having children? Well, those are personal decisions that whether I get married or whether I decide to have children have nothing to do with my capabilities as a surgeon. And, you know, the, the thing about women who decide to go into this is they have planned things and they probably are pretty organized and they they think through like my my trajectory for my career, especially in academia, not that they have to plan when they're going to have a pregnancy, but most of the time they've been pretty thoughtful about this. And I wouldn't say that it's a fair question anymore. Fortunately, at some of the larger academic institutions like Emory, we're encouraging not only maternity leave, but also paternity leave. Mm -hmm. That time is important. And so my hope is that one, soon we don't have to have this conversation at all because it's just the norm, but two, that it's encouraged for the men to also take that time because that you're never getting that time back with your new child. And so this time with the baby, the time with the family, that is probably in my mind now more important than I did however many more cabbages. And, and so the thing is that we need to promote diversity in healthcare. Sometimes even people say, well, maybe we should put an advertisement and asking just for, you know, we want a female surgeon or we want an African-American now. Is, is that the right way to do it, I worry? Really be selective to increase the number of diverse staff? You know, I think that the merit in that sentiment is that thought is going into the diversification, that one is actually thinking about the racial or gender composition of the panel or the faculty. And I think that that, that part of it is true. Now, how one goes about that is different. But what I think is true is that without a systematic approach, it doesn't really take flight. There has to be something from an administrative intent that allows things to happen. I mean, when you look at historically, the women's suffrage, civil rights, these movements required a very systematic approach. 
from the majority to say, these are the changes we're going to make. I'll give you an example. Dr. Grubb's uh, explanation there about leave and parental leave is a really good example because within a male-dominated environment, there is no need, apparently, for maternity leave to make it as an agenda item on an important administrative meeting because there are no maternity issues in a male 100% panel. There's nothing to discuss about bathrooms, about stocking, about children's, uh, about pregnancies, <laughs> so it, it can be ignored. When women enter the workplace, these become important issues that should be discussed. Now, if there isn't a, a systematic way in which these are addressed, then they can be left by the wayside. Iceland has one of the best parental leave laws in the world, where parents are allowed 39 weeks paid leave, 80% of their salary. Now, these things have to be addressed from a, a legal standpoint, from an HR standpoint, because if you leave it to the ad hoc sentiment of a benevolent spirit, well, then when it's convenient, it'll happen. But when it's inconvenient, then it is not a priority. So if they are dedicated and systematic intent at creating diversification, and there should be, it'll happen. If it is just an agenda item at the bottom of the list that we'll get to, if the meeting ends on time, well, you know how that goes. Yeah. Peter, to have a comment there, I think if there was an ad that was placed saying, seeking you know middle-aged white men for this faculty position there is going to be a tremendous uproar in the community <laughs> and i don't know if you put out a similar ad saying we're looking for visible minorities or we're looking for a female surgeon to join our group whether that male white surgeon would have the same outrage and and, and do the legal actions that uh, i'm sure would arise in the in the opposite situation so it's an interesting point you made. i don't think anybody has the courage to actually place i've never seen one uh, a recruitment ad that specifies a specific group. In contrast, I think, as I said earlier, most of the disclaimers at the bottom saying, you know, members of visible minorities and uh, genders and, and sexual orientations are encouraged to apply because we encourage diversity. Madei Wari's point, I agree, it can't be an afterthought. It has to be part of the mission. And in fact, I can tell you that we did two recent recruitments, not for, for surgical faculty, but for nursing management positions and the first attachment was not the, the applicant's curriculum CV, but was to, to say that this is what we're looking for and do they meet inclusiveness and, and equality and diversity criteria because that's an important component to the recruitment. So there was a checkbox at the top of the list of the interview as to whether or not the applicant met inclusion and diversity goals of the institution, right. um, which you can argue is right or wrong, but that was the fact. Well, and I also worry that when you target a particular group of people, you actually end up with some animosity because was that person hired because they truly are the best person for the job or were they hired because they're a female cardiac surgeon and we needed another female cardiac surgeon or we needed one cardiac surgeon that's who's female. Um, and Nobody wants to be in that position, one, where they feel like they were only hired because they're black or because they're female. And within that group of people, you're going to be looked at differently. And so it kind of makes things a little worse. I actually think that the blinded applications are one way to avoid this. You're not looking at Awari's name or Kendra's name. You just have the details of their application, of their CV. And sir, you may be able to figure out a few things, but let's assess people on their individual merits and get away from, I need to check this box. 
Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe at metronic.com slash cardiac exchange to hear the next portion of this conversation and to find additional podcast content.